Welcome back to the More God, Less Me podcast. I'm your host, Justin, and as always, I'm happy to be with you guys today. We're going to be tackling one of those tougher subjects to talk about within the church, and that being, as the title indicates, authority. But not just authority in the broad sense. Really, we want to dive into authority within the church, the authority that is given by God. Now, this is a difficult subject to teach on because of our culture today. Our culture struggles to respect authority and even the authority that God gives. It can be especially difficult for pastors to teach on this subject because of how the audience wants to read into the message, taking what they are saying as, see, you have to listen to me because God placed me in this position. I'm willing to be honest and say that I've struggled in those moments just as much as anybody else. It can be hard to have someone tell you why you should admit, submit to the authority God has given them. So that doesn't mean that we shouldn't respect their authority, especially in light of what the Scripture has to say on the subject, as we'll see shortly. It's also important to understand that pastors sometimes struggle with presenting certain messages from the Lord because they know how the congregation is going to think. They're no different than we are. Pastors are no different than we are. They still have the same... They may have a... That they may have a different calling than we do, but that doesn't mean that they are vastly different humans who don't have the same struggles, who don't have the same thoughts as we do. And I would be willing to say that many pastors have had the same struggle in their past whenever someone else taught on authority and they didn't have the full understanding of God-given authority. So it's hard for them to come in there knowing how their audience is going to react because they know their congregations and they know what people will be thinking when they preach it. But that doesn't mean that they can skip over what God has called them to preach. If God has led them to a certain subject for a certain purpose to meet the need of the local church and edify the people, then they have to present that message even when it's difficult. And that statement alone, God calling somebody, God purposing, and God giving them a message that has a purpose to build up the local church should be one reason on its own to not question the spiritual authority that God has placed in our lives. Now, I feel like God has spoke to me on this subject, and he wants me to bring this through on the podcast, but I also don't believe that God has placed me in a a place of spiritual authority through this podcast. I'm not your pastor, and because we're on the internet, we're not able to develop the personal relationship required for me to be in a position of authority in your life. I am simply somebody who has been called by God to share the word or share with the world, I'm sorry, the simple teaching he has placed in my heart every week, which makes both of our jobs much easier today. I don't have to worry that you'll believe this teaching is targeted to get you to submit to me, and you don't have to worry about that being my ultimate desire. So I know what you're thinking. This is the More God, Less Me podcast. What does questioning leadership, what does understanding authority really have to do with the greater goal of this podcast, which is to have more of God and less of ourselves. To really answer that question, I think we need to go back and first ask, who gives authority within the church? Is it other leaders, the congregation, blind luck? Does the person elevate themselves, or does God, in fact, place people in positions of authority within his church? We better hope that it's the latter, because if our spiritual leader got their position by any other means than God, I can't imagine we are being led anywhere other than astray. Thankfully, this isn't a question that we have are forced to ponder or answer for ourselves. We are blessed by God to have his inspired word, and because he is God, he knew 
that we would have such questions about authority one day, which is exactly why our Bibles have an answer for us. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, which says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So this verse shows us that God created roles of leadership within the church. But how do people end up in these roles? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 says, I'm sorry, 18 says, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Meaning that God has placed people in certain positions where he thinks they fit best, where he intends for them to fit best. God decides what position we all get within the spiritual body or within the church. We can see this in greater detail in 1 Corinthians 12, 28-30, just a few verses down from that one. And it says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Paul shows us not only has God created roles in the church, he also appoints individuals to those roles. Paul also makes it clear in that same verse that not everyone is called to fulfill those roles. There are various roles and various people that God has designed, that God has intended to fit the very specific roles within the church. Some people are meant to teach and preach and be evangelists and be prophets, and other people are gifted at, at helping or administration and meant to fit in other areas of the church. That chapter 12 of uh, 1 Corinthians is so important to understand because what God is saying is that everybody in the church has equal value. We can't accomplish the missions and the goals to the best of our ability without everybody that God intends to be in the church. We need all parts of the body working together just like we need all parts of our human body working together to be at our best and to perform at our best. We need all parts of the church body to be together. So that means that the pastor... While he may be called by God and chosen by God to do what he does, there are other people within the church who are called and chosen to do what they are doing, and that the pastor wouldn't be as effective at what the pastor's doing, or the person in spiritual leadership and authority wouldn't be as, as effective in what they're doing if they didn't have the other members of the body who may not receive the same honor or the same prestige, but they are still necessary to best fulfill what God has purposed in the church. Those verses make it so clear that God, it is God who gives authority within the church. When we question those in leadership and their authority, we are not questioning man but God, because it is God who gave them the authority they now have, which is why this is such an important topic to cover on the More God, Less Me podcast. Questioning God shows that we have a little too much of ourselves and not enough of Him. But as we grow to have more of God and less of ourselves, following the Spirit, not the flesh, we will find it easier to trust all that God has established, including leadership roles, because He establishes those in the church as well. And we should also trust the authority of those He has chosen to fulfill those roles. If we really look at it, I think there are two major types of questioning authority inside the church. I think many people are sitting around questioning why God would choose that person to be an authority, looking at them and trying to understand why them. And then there's other people who believe that they or someone else could do a better job than the person God chose. Often these two can be compiled into one form of questioning authority, obviously. Knowing that 
it is God who gives authority still doesn't keep us from wanting to ask God, why them? Why have you placed them in this position? Through our eyes, it can seem like God has made the wrong decision because the person God has chosen to lead us just doesn't seem like a great leader. They may be missing the qualities that worldly wisdom says makes a great leader. Asking God why them is often coupled with the statement such as, I could do better than they are doing. Why hasn't God placed me in this in this role of authority? The scriptures begin to be misapplied, such as God is no respecter of persons. A statement that, while true, does not mean that God doesn't look at a person as who is the best choice, or who doesn't. That doesn't mean that God doesn't look at people and while He doesn't respect them just because, oh, I like this person better than I like the other person. But God still makes the best choice for every position. God looks not just at physical things or the outward appearance of man, but God is able to do things that we aren't able to do, and he searches the heart. Now, I want to be very clear. I don't believe it's wrong to ask some of these questions. I would even say that at times these questions should be asked, not as a complaint, but truly by trying to understand why God uses certain people and even to discover what God has for you in your own life. But, and that's a big but, when such questions become your focus— and you are more focused on questioning than actually finding the answers, you will bring forth strife, which is something that we never want within the church. But it will work to expose why God chooses some people and not others for positions of authority. Now, I don't believe that we see any greater example of this than in the life of Moses. His authority was questioned multiple times by other Israelites. In these moments, though, where his authority is questioned, we are able to see why God chose him over everyone else. It's not because God simply preferred him over the rest of the people of Israel. It's because of his humble heart and his love for the people of God. There are really two major times that I want to focus on in this podcast where Moses has his authority challenged. And both times we see Moses respond in a very humble way to the offense. Moses' own brother Aaron and his sister Miriam are the first to challenge him as the leader of the people. Numbers chapter 12 gives the full account, starting at verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Those two verses tell you a lot. So they spoke against the man of God who had led them out of Egypt, who had done so many miraculous things, And Aaron and Miriam had been a part of a lot of those things, but they began to speak against Moses because of some of the behavior that he had shown by marrying the Cushite woman. But it's the way that they go about questioning this marriage that I think we need to really focus on, because they said, has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So they're trying to make themselves equal with Moses in a way to supplant the authority that he has or to gain the authority that Moses has. And it says, the Lord heard it. Now, starting back at verse 3, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. It's a pretty important verse to stop on as well, because it shows us why God chose Moses. Because he was very meek, or very humble. He was the most humble man at the time that he was alive on the entire face of the earth. Going back to verse 4, it says, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Arian, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful 
in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak of my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and they departed. So the Lord came down and told Aaron and Miriam plainly that Moses was a special individual and that God had purposed him for a special purpose and a special plan, and that's why Moses had the authority that he did. And it says that he's even different than the other prophets because God spoke to Moses in a different way because of the heart of Moses. Going back to verse 10, it says, When the cloud removed over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. So we see here that Aaron, by, by hearing from God and then seeing the things that took place with his sister, realizes that they have acted foolishly, that they should never have spoken against Moses. And then in verse 12, he continues to ask Moses for forgiveness. He says, let, us, let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried out to the Lord, oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought back in. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So what we see here is that even though Miriam and Aaron had both wronged Moses, had both challenged his authority, had both tried to supplant him, Moses still responds righteously to them. He doesn't leave and think, well, no, she got what she deserved. That's not the heart that Moses had. Instead, Moses prays for his sister to be healed by the living God instead of having to suffer the rest of her life with leprosy. I think if the tables had been turned, that's not how Moses, or sorry, how Miriam and Aaron would have responded to Moses because they didn't have the right heart. Hence, why they challenged Moses' authority in the first place. But because God is gracious and merciful, and because Moses had the right heart and the right connection with God, Moses prays and God touches his sister, heals her of the leprosy, and they're able to continue on their journey through the wilderness. You would think that witnessing this happen to Miriam would be enough to cause the entire congregation to accept the authority given to Moses. But only four chapters later, in the book of Numbers, we read of another rebellion, and this time led by a man named Korah, a member of the tribe of Levi. Number 16, verse 1 says, Now Korah, the son of Izahar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abrimim, and the son, the sons of Elab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord. This again is showing the same thing that we saw in the previous time that Moses' authority was challenged. They started to question, why Moses? Why him? We're just as good as he is. God, God has called the whole congregation holy, so we could all be able to do and have the authority that Moses has. That's what we see again here. And then in the next verse, verse 4, it says, When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. 
that's a way of humbling yourself, not just before people, but before God. He wasn't falling on his face before Korah. He was falling on his face before the Lord God Almighty, already humbly submitting to him that God wouldn't destroy him. In verse 5, he said, And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show you who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi, Moses said to Korah. Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small of a thing for you that God... Of the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers and the sons of Levi with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? That's a pretty interesting thing to think about right there, too. Because as we talked about earlier, God places people in certain positions within the body to, to do certain things that make the whole body function fully and better. But they weren't satisfied with what God had called them to do. They weren't satisfied to think, this is what God has for us and we should do it to the best of our abilities. Instead, they said, God has given us this role, but we are capable of so much more. We should try to be like Moses and take the authority that Moses has. But that was the wrong answer. They should have been happy with where God had put them and trusted the authority that God had also placed in their life and allowed everything to work fully and fit together as it should have. If we go back to verse 12, it says, And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abram and the sons of Elab, and they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of the field and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed any of them. So in this, this section of right here, what we're seeing is that these people blame Moses for all the bad things that have happened to him. They forget the past in, in Egypt, how awful everything was, and they're simply looking at their certain circumstances as being awful and blaming Moses for it when the circumstances that they were facing weren't the fault of Moses. Truly, had they just trusted the two good spies that were sent into the land and entered whenever God first wanted to, they wouldn't be going through any of these strifes in the first place. But because they trusted the wrong people, that kind of brought them to where they now are. They would have already been in the land of milk and honey had they trusted the Lord God. Then it continues on, in verse 16 it says, And Moses said to Korah, be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they, Aaron and Aaron tomorrow. Let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also and Aaron each his censer. So every man took his censer and put it in the fire and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of a meeting with Moses and Aaron. And then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Danthan, and Abram. That's a pretty powerful thing. Still, all these people are fighting against Moses and against Aaron 
And when it comes to it and God is ready to destroy all the people, again, Moses falls down humbly before God and says, God, please, this, these people were in the wrong, but don't destroy everybody over it because, God, because Moses loved the people of God. Now, the story goes on to tell us in the preceding verses what continues to happen. And that is that those wicked men were destroyed by the Lord. The earth opened up and swallowed them. Fire came out and consumed all the 250 men that Korah had gathered together. Because they fought against the authority that God had placed in their life. They fought against the order of God. And so God responded in a clear manner so that the rest of the congregation would understand not to go against the authority that God had established. That's a pretty rough rough way to look at it. And praise God that that's not how it happens today when we challenge authority. But it still causes God to be angry when we look at the man of God and we question everything that he's doing. When we try to supplant that person's authority, it still upsets God today if we don't trust what God has established. And these accounts from God's word show us that Moses was not a self-seeking man. Neither was he quick-tempered. Not to say that he wasn't pushed to his breaking point a few times. If we remember, he was the first and probably only person to ever break all Ten Commandments at one time. All joking aside, he did break the tablets of stone on which God had written the Ten Commandments when he came down from the mountain and discovered the people practicing idolatry. And he also smote the rock after being pushed too far by the Israelites instead of speaking to it as God had commanded, which resulted to him not being able to enter the promised land. But despite being a flawed human, Moses didn't seek what was best for him at all costs. He wanted what was best for the whole of God's people. But those who questioned the authority of Moses were not this way. They wanted to be on top and to have a great name and to be the person in charge. And this is evident in their actions and their speeches we just read and that are forever recorded in the book of Numbers. When we have the thousand-foot view from Scripture, it's easy to see why they didn't get picked by God, and Moses did. When tough times came, they would have not gone to God in intercessory prayer on behalf of the people. Instead, because they weren't humble but prideful, they would have had hurt egos and broken pride, and they would have most likely chose to sit back and watch as God destroyed the people, or possibly even prayed for him to do so. But Moses was not this way. No matter what the people did to him, Moses continued to intercede with God on their behalf, crying out that God might forgive them of their trespasses. What we can really see from this, in my opinion as well, is that Moses was the only man for the job. Moses left all the people in Israel and went to seek, I'm sorry, not Moses, God left all the people that were in Egypt, all the Israelites that were there, and went into the wilderness to seek Moses that he might return to Egypt to free the Israelites. And even when Moses tried to like get away from it, he was claiming that he wasn't a great speaker and all this, God still wouldn't let him off but continued to make a way for him to be used. He provided signs, he sent Aaron to speak for him, and he really answered all the objections that Moses had. I really think that this shows that while there were many other men in Israel, some who may have been gifted speakers or looked powerful or had had a look of authority in their lives, like they looked like they should be the person in authority. Maybe that's what Korah looked like. They weren't the right person for the job because they did not share the heart of Moses. And that's just the thing. God's no respecter of persons, but he does look past what we can see to make his judgments. And he makes those judgments based on the heart. The Bible makes it clear that God searches the motives of the heart. In Proverbs 21-2, it says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. 
in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, it says, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That would also mean that whatever is, you know, looked down upon by men is what God was willing to raise up, right? Now, the wicked people... Those wicked people with self-serving motives will never receive authority from God. They may be able to produce some kind of counterfeit version of God's authority and a massive following, just like Korah did. But we see how that worked out for him. That was a counterfeit version of authority. That's not what God had intended, and so God didn't cause it to prosper, cause it to be to work to the best of its ability. God still is placing people in positions of authority within our churches today. And he is still doing it in the same way for the same reasons he did when he appointed Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. God isn't concerned with looks, stature, worldly intelligence, strength, or impressive speaking ability. I could give countless examples of this from the Bible. You take David. David wasn't a tall man. David was a young youth man. He was small. But then he still used David to do such mighty works. And it wasn't because of the looks of David. It was David was a man after God's own heart. That's why God chose him. Paul even talks about in his letters, the Apostle Paul, he was, a, he was a great speaker, but he said he didn't use the wisdom of this world. And that he gave up all things to just simply preach the gospel. It wasn't a grand speech that Paul brought to the people. It was a simple, humble speech that Paul used. What God is truly concerned with when granting someone authority over his people is the heart. God wants to use the people with a broken and contrite heart who love him and want to seek his interests, not their own. Often, I don't want to say always, but often those who question authority are not this way. They want to roll in leadership because they believe it will make them important and will allow them to serve themselves. They're not just looking to practice servant leadership with those that have been entrusted over, but are looking to themselves to be served, just like we can see Aaron, Miriam, and Korah all did. They also cannot fully embrace and fulfill the position God has given them and trust that God will be willing to use them in a higher role in the future. Like we explained, the Levites, people who had been a great job from God, they had been given a great role within God's plan, were not willing to accomplish or fulfill that role. They wanted something more than what God intended for them to have at that moment. People like this never grow in their current position because they are too busy questioning the leadership of others. It's clear in the scripture that God appoints leaders within the church and that those placed under their authority by God should respect that authority. Not questioning every decision or trying to supplant their authority at every turn, but does this mean that we should take everything our leaders say as the gospel truth? No. Especially if what they are saying contradicts gospel truth. I firmly believe that every Christian should be spending time in God's Word daily, equipping themselves with truth so they can easily identify false teaching, as well as employing the Berean method, as seen in Acts chapter 17, whenever they hear a teaching that they are unsure about. The Berean method is in Acts chapter 17, verse 10 through 12. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So what this is saying is that 
when Paul brought the word to the people of Berea, they accepted what he was saying as he was teaching, but when he was done, they didn't just say, this is the truth. They turned to the scriptures and they began to look through the Bible to make sure that what he was saying was accurate. And they found the message that Paul preached to be true. And because of that, they placed their faith in the message that Paul brought. That's, that's a lot of the same thing that we should be doing today. When we are brought a new teaching, especially something that we've not heard before in the church, especially depending on how long you've been in the church, but whenever you are taught something that maybe you aren't, aren't sure about, or like where is that in the Bible, or how did this teaching come about, it's time to turn to the scriptures and make sure that the teaching you receive is what it should be. And then I believe that just like the Bible records the people of Berea being noble, God views us as noble for doing that because we are taking the time to ensure that we are receiving the truth that is from him and not a false message of truth from this world or from the mind of a mere man. I believe that we should test authority or trust authority and test teaching. If we look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 20-22, it says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. This same principle can be applied to the teaching we receive from our spiritual leaders today. We should trust God-given authority, but still test what they say with the Scripture to ensure we aren't being led astray. It's not wrong to question teaching when you don't understand it or struggle to find it in the Bible. Because you're not trying to supplant authority, you're not trying to go around other people, gain a following for yourself, and cast doubt on a leader's authority. You're just trying to simply grow in your understanding. That's what questions are, are a way for us to grow. And like I've always been told, there's no stupid questions. If you truly are struggling within the church to understand a certain doctrine or a certain teaching of your church, it's not dumb, it's not bad to ask, hey, I'm struggling, can you help me to better understand this? Can you help me to open up the Word and define these things that you're teaching on so I can understand them more? I believe that's what God would intend us to do, not just simply taking other people's words for what His, His inspired Word says, but instead trying to grow in it, trying to get more than what we already have. Which is different than what those who questioned the authority of Moses were trying to do. They were not seeking a better understanding of why God had chose to use Moses over the rest of the congregation. Had they wanted to, they could have simply asked Moses to seek an answer from the Lord with them. But they didn't want an answer. What they really wanted was Moses' authority. So they challenged him in an attempt to take the authority for themselves, which in a lot of ways, there are people still today, you may be thinking like, well, I, I would never do that. But there are people who do that. There are people who try to take the authority of a pastor in a local church because they disagree with that pastor, instead of just trying to understand where that pastor is coming from and why they are teaching those certain things. It's not the job of the saints to try to supplant the person that God has placed in there. That doesn't mean that we don't question and ask questions and try to understand or make sure that we know what they're talking about. But we have to trust that God's put the right person in place, and that's who God would have to lead that church. Now, all that being said, what about false teachers? I don't feel like we could really bridge this subject on authority, the authority that God gives to leaders within his church, without touching on the subject of false teachers. Honestly, could there be anything worse than being deceived and allowing someone who shouldn't have authority in your life to have it? But how do we prevent that from happening? How do we ensure that we the authority that someone exercises is from God and not from man? Like in the sense of 
questioning the pastor, questioning the teaching, how do we make sure that we're not following somebody that's not actually there that we should be following? Because if there is somebody who is a false teacher, that's nothing. That's not something that we should go along with. That's not something that we should trust, but that is something that we should call out and we should warn others about false teaching. But how do we differentiate a false teacher from somebody who's truly called by God and truly has been given authority from God? Well, a lot of ways in the world today, we believe that somebody has authority from God based on their position or the amount of people who follow them. But those are not good reasons. Neither are appearance, ability. None of those are signs of God-given authority. There's no direct correlation between any of those things and what God has done. Korah, in the examples that we had above, was able to get 250 people to follow him. But that was not based on God-given authority. That was probably based on the fact that maybe he was a good-looking person, maybe he was you know, tough individual, maybe people wanted to follow him, maybe he had charisma. But it still wasn't from God, because that was from a worldly lens and not from a godly lens. And many times it's the person that doesn't look like the best leader from a worldly perspective that God desires to lead his people. As Christians, we should be looking through the lens of the Bible and not the lens of the world. If we really want to be able to identify false teachers, then you must be a student of the Word, able to test the teaching, like we talked about earlier, but also knowing how the Bible teaches those in roles of leadership are supposed to conduct themselves because they are held to a higher standard. There should be a, t a form of servant leadership within the church, following what Jesus did. Jesus said "May that the highest should serve the lowest, and Jesus even got down and washed the feet of his disciples. That's the example that Jesus set forth of leadership. Being a leader who is willing to serve even the least in the amount of your congregation, that's a, one of the ways that leaders are supposed to conduct themselves within the church. Also, a student of the Word will be able to identify someone used by God and someone who is not, all based on the fruit that they are producing. And Jesus taught this very thing in Matthew chapter 7, speaking directly about false teachers. In Matthew seven fifteen through 20, it says, Beware of false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This applies, this applies directly to those in roles of leadership. Every Christian should be wise and alert, paying attention to how leadership conducts themselves to see if the fruit they produce, to, to see the fruit they produce. It's so important that we take note of these things to ensure we aren't taken captive by false teachings. Actions and lifestyles paint a clear picture of those walking in the Spirit and those walking in the flesh. As the Bible says, the works of the flesh are evident. This is found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, which say, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So those are the works of the flesh, and the Bible says that they are evident. And we know that they're evident because you can't hide things like anger, fits of rage, rivalries, dissension, or division. And what's interesting is that those are the works that we saw in the lives of Arian, Miriam, and Korah. Aaron, Miriam, and Korah. I don't know if I said that right the first time or not, but 
those are the very principles, those are the very attributes that would have described them in their moments where they came to come against Moses. But Moses would be described in the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit can clearly be seen in the lives of any true follower of Christ as well. Galatians 5, 22-24 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In both cases, the attributes described are ones that cannot be masked. Eventually, someone's actions will show if they follow after the flesh or the Spirit. Take note of what Paul included at the end of the last passage. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, meaning that those things have died and they no longer live in that way, which helps us to understand that behavior is a clear sign of someone living for God and those who are false converts. We can see, by the way, if we watch people, eventually it will become evident who is following the Spirit and who is following the flesh. And God's not going to promote people to a place of authority or they may have gotten there at one point and fallen away and now ex exercise those, but those are still people that we shouldn't be following as our teachers. We should be looking for leaders in places of authority who are living out and who exemplify the fruit of the Spirit, who are putting out good fruit in their daily lives. And these things can be seen even in just a congregational setting. By the way that they interact with people, by the way that they think, by the way that they even speak, it becomes clear if they're following the fruit of the Spirit or if they're following the flesh. And again, we don't want to be following leaders who are following the flesh because those are not the people who God is using or who God means for us to have authority in our lives. My last and probably one of the best ways to test if someone is a false teacher is to see how they respond to questions. Someone called and used by God's will to exercise will exercise the same humility, patience, compassion, kindness, and love that Moses did. A good leader wants to lead well, which means that they will want to help you understand what they are teaching and will be willing to answer questions. While a false teacher doesn't do that because they don't have a biblically backed answer. Sometimes you'll even see false teachers get angry whenever they're questioned because they don't really have an answer and they don't expect to be questioned. They just expect to have their authority respected. And they'll often try to convince you simply to trust them because of the authority that God has given you. And when those kind of things happen, it's easy to see that that's not the person that you should be following. Somebody called by God will want, will simply be willing to open up the Bible and try to help you understand what they're teaching. Of course, everyone, including leaders appointed by God, have bad days. So this method is not completely foolproof. It is possible that you could catch a leader on a bad day when they don't provide the answer they normally would. And we have to extend some grace in those cases. But when you can bind testing, teaching against Scripture, looking for good fruit, and how they respond to your questions or concerns, it will become clear if they have been given authority from God or not. And we should praise God that he has made it so easy to recognize those who truly walk in his ways because they look different from the world. When we know God's Word, we can see who he is using and who he isn't. We should flee from those who teach contrary to the Scriptures produce the fruit of the flesh, and have given themselves authority while respecting, and I would say even looking for those who teach God's Word in its fullness, produce the fruit of the Spirit, and have received their authority from God. All of us at some point or another within the church are going to be at odds with the authority God has placed in our lives. That's just a fact of living in a fallen world. We won't always agree or be able to see things in the same way. But when these moments come, we must have the right response. 
which is turning to the scripture, praying to God for guidance, and asking the leader kind, considerate questions to gain a better understanding. A disagreement should never cause us to be combative, leave the church, or speak against the person God has appointed. We must have a righteous response in these situations. The chances are we misunderstood, didn't have all the information, or the leader misspoke. Of course, there could be times and situations where the things that are taking place in a church should cause you to leave that church and should cause you to warn others about that said church. But those aren't things that we should take flippantly. Those are things that we should slowly observe and slowly make decisions on, like I said, through prayer, through studying the Word, and through trying to work with that leadership to see if maybe there's been some kind of misunderstanding. Because we don't want to jump to conclusions on the things of God. We should work very hard and very diligently to ensure that we are doing the best that we can in our walk with God. And we don't want to tear down somebody else just because we didn't understand their teaching or maybe because you know, they accidentally left something out through their, their message, which I can imagine happens often doing this podcast. I've skipped over things on accident before you know, many times. So we should trust the authority that God has given in our lives because God places people in those senses of authority. We test the teaching to ensure that that person should be there and is truly has truly received authority from God, but we trust him nonetheless until we have true evidence that that's not the place that God would have us to be. And like I said, that kind of thing comes through prayer. I really hope that this has helped somebody today because of respecting authority is such an important thing within the church. God gives us people authority to lead us, to lead certain people in certain situations to the best of their ability. No one else could have done what Moses did for the Israelites in that time, and nobody else would have prayed and loved and cared for them the way that Moses did. Even though he didn't look like the best leader for the time, Moses was the person that God had chosen. And that can be the same way in our lives. And we should respect the teaching that comes from these people, especially in the sense that we shouldn't try to be combative about what someone's teaching if we don't know what the Word of God says for ourselves. And we talked about reading it to be able to test what their teaching is against the Scripture, but that actually goes two ways, because we mainly focus on how they should be teaching biblical truth in the pulpit in the church setting, and we should be sure that that's the kind of teaching that we are receiving. But also, we need to make sure that what we think is truth in our hearts is actually the truth of the Bible, because our hearts can be wickedly deceitful above all things, convincing us of things that are not true. So we should ensure as well that we know the truth, because if there's a good chance that our preachers could be teaching the message that God intends them to preach with the truth, and it's simply not the message we want to hear, which causes us to be combative and causes us to question authority that we shouldn't be questioned. Instead, that authority is what's making us better even if it doesn't feel good in the moment. Iron sharpens iron. To get the rust off of the iron, if one iron's going to sharpen the other iron, there's going to be some pretty abrasive scrapes, there's going to be some things, but it's going to come out better in the end. And sometimes that's the way it is with the authority that God places in the lives of those around us. Sometimes they preach a message that we simply don't want to hear, but we need to hear in order to grow closer to God, to get a deeper relationship with Him, and to stay on the narrow path that leads to salvation. Again, I hope that this has helped somebody today to understand authority, to be able to explain God-given authority to other people. Because, to be completely honest, those in the world around us who aren't in the church struggle greater than a lot of Christians even do with the idea of having a central authority figure like a preacher or a pastor in their lives. 
because they don't have any knowledge or any understanding of God. Sometimes as Christians, it can be easy because we know that at least God intends and calls people to be preachers, even if we still struggle with that authority in some ways. People outside don't. And so being able to listen to a podcast like this and gain the understanding that maybe you can share with others about authority could be such a blessing. This podcast, again, not the most fun one to make. It's not about hope and joy and peace. It's about submitting yourself to the authority that God has placed in your life, but it'll produce so many great things in your life, and it'll be a great blessing to be fully submitted to godly authority as they try to lead you into that closer relationship with God. Now, next week is going to be a little bit more interesting. It's going to actually be similar in context, I believe. The Lord willing, my plan for next week is is to share another similar thing about accepting your call to authority. Because like Moses, many of us can question that. And so I think it's good to look at certain people's calls to authority and what they looked like and how God calls us, and sometimes we'll have questions for it in our own life. But we'll save all that for next week. Until then, I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Be back here on Wednesday for the God Notes podcast. There's no telling all the things and all the topics we're going to cover on that podcast. On Friday, we'll have the Better Together podcast where I'm joined by my lovely wife. And we just talk about so much fun stuff and often end up talking about Jesus because what's more fun and what's better than the Lord who has saved us. Anyways, I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Like I said, God bless. God bless.